They clamored, squirmed, and wiggled to the deck, forcing us steadily backward, though we emptied our pistols into them. There were all sorts and conditions of horrible things. Huge, hideous, grotesque, monstrous, a veritable Mesozoic nightmare. I'm Zach. I'm Bob. I'm Joe. Welcome back from our month-long break. Uh, we just read The Land That Time Forgot by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This is the first book in this month's topic, which is Lost Worlds. Yeah, I thought this book was really cool. I love Fort Dinosaur. I love going into some impossible hole in the middle of the earth. And then uh, trying to survive while dinosaurs are trying to eat you. And then uh, while under threat of dinosaurs, naming your boy fort. Fort Dinosaur. Great uh, great structure. It did have like kind of a childhood uh, treehouse aspect to it. You know, who wouldn't want a fort dinosaur in their own backyard? Gunning down, you know, uh, onslaughts of dinosaurs that try to breach the walls. It was great. Yeah, absolutely. It's really a book of like two halves as well. Like, it's like two books in one. Like first half, war, espionage, Germans versus Allies, Great World War One fun. Second half, dinosaurs, primitive peoples, <laughs> near death experiences, left, right, and center. I thought it was great fun. Yeah, that was really interesting. How we have uh, basically just like a World War Two, um, almost like submarine espionage story uh the captors and the captives trying to figure out who's sabotaging the boat for the first half but then once they get to this uh this like undiscovered landmass Caspak, uh it immediately turns into like world war one soldiers versus all the dinosaurs and all the like proto humans uh, all the neanderthals that that you can think of and it's almost like two different books but i'm glad we had the first part of it to establish who the characters are, what their dynamics are, so that we can then bring them into this new uh, and interesting situation. So who are these characters then? We got Bowen Tyler, who is um, a submarine technician. Are they submarines? They call them U-boats. I-, I think that's the same thing as a submarine. I don't know. It's a submarine. I, I just kind of read it as a submarine. I regret to say it's been about 118 years since I fought in World War One, so my memory is... Uh, a little, a little shaky on this. Yeah, a U-boat is a submarine. A U-boat is a kind of German submarine, specifically. But Bowen is not German. Bowen is American. He's just made the submarines for the Germans. Uh, but this gives him like the ability to know that bastard. every nook and cranny of the submarine. So when stuff got, starts going wrong, he's the one who has like the expertise to to try to fix it. One thing that I really love about Bowen and also. Yes, submarines are great. Hunt for Red October. I'm all for that. But the best thing was when he's starting to kick ass and he's fighting with these cavemen and he says, Californians, as a rule, are familiar with jujitsu. And I especially had made a study. <laughs> so that's why he's kicking ass all of a sudden. It's like, yes, I used to design. That was amazing. It's not referenced at all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, he's Californian, man. That was my favorite bit of the book. He's from fucking Los Angeles. 
It's such a late introduction, too. Like, he didn't know jujitsu before, and then suddenly, uh, there he is, throwing people over his head. Man, some travel ads. Put a T-Rex. That's right. I have never wanted to move to L.A. more than oh, yeah. in the moment that that uh, line <laughs> popped up in my audiobook. <laughs> I was like, damn, that's all I gotta do? Just get a, get a room there, and suddenly I can start learning jujitsu? Is that true that Californians are all good at jujitsu? I've never heard that before. Maybe you can tell me more. <laughs> all of them. Yeah, never fight a Californian. Yeah, you, you can't walk down the street without getting tackled from behind by a jujitsu master. Yeah. I think it's really interesting that this book is published in 1924 and people are talking about jujitsu. Um, I, I don't know why. I just thought it took off later than that. Like, I, I can clearly imagine the 1980s like ninja boom in in uh television like uh oh yes well like beverly hills ninja uh the karate kid my friend the karate kid teenage mutant ninja turtles mm. uh that's that's like 60 years after this book was published so yeah la has just always been about <laughs> kicking ass oh yeah well this story he he yeah, Bowen in this story attributes his skill to like some gym in Los Angeles, but also someone he had in his employ who was a Japanese, who was a wonder at the arts, unquote. I wouldn't be surprised if Edgar Rice Burroughs actually went to that gym and he just like, <laughs> he was like, oh, I love these guys. I'll give them some free advertising. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. I bet Edgar Rice Burroughs did do jujitsu. He seems like that kind of person. Well... Okay, I'm on I'm on his Wikipedia page, and it says Burroughs California Ranch is now the center of the Tarzana neighborhood in Los Angeles. So we know he lived in L.A. Now the question is, did he fight? <laughs> did he Further, fight dinosaurs, did he fight dinosaurs <laughs> using jujitsu? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is he a poser? Is Burroughs a poser here saying he fought jujitsu? <laughs> Sorry, you don't fight jujitsu, you fight with jujitsu. Um, okay, so we got Bowen, great guy. We got his love interest, who may or may not be German. Uh, we have his enemy, who may or may not be German. And then we have uh, the antagonist. Well, and we got a love triangle oh, yes. between these yes. people. I call right? it a love pretzel. A love pretzel. What's that? Just like a love yeah. triangle, but a little bit more complicated. Like what's, a, what's a love pretzel? Yeah, we got a love pretzel between Baron Friedrich... Baron Friedrich von Schwerenwurz. <laughs> yeah, Friedrich von Schwerenwurz uh, and Lisa Rue. Uh, isn't that a French name? Sounds French to me. Le Rue. And Bowen Tyler. So I guess that Lise was um, in like an arranged marriage situation with uh, with the good Baron. But Bowen is like this uh, weirdly repressed guy who uh, doesn't realize he loves her until he's like, uh, um, she's like cold and he needs to warm her up and all that stuff. And that seems to be like uh, the entire progression of their love is she gets cold, he needs to warm her up, uh, and uh, that turns into uh, hearts of flutter. Doesn't he save her? I love this mom. Maybe I've got this mixed up, but you know, we we get this almost scene of necrophilia where where he sees a corpse. It's the beginning of this espionage novel, and there's all of these bodies floating by the boat, 
It's a horrible, horrible World War I scene. And he sees this corpse and he says, man, she sure would be beautiful if she weren't dead. And then suddenly she opens her eyes. <laughs> and then he takes care of her. Isn't that how it starts? That, I, yeah. I forgot about that. Hell of a meat cute. The what? You said... <laughs> what do you mean? All I said it was a, it was a hell of a meat cute. A meat cute? Yeah. It was more of an M E A T meat cute. Oh. 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 I I <laughs> Wait, is there an M E E T cute? Yeah. It's like it's like the part of a a romantic okay. exactly. Yeah, <laughs> comedy or whatever where Two people, you know, both walking along, you know, with their briefcase and a croissant or whatever, and they bump into each other. And a coffee, yeah. You know, and, like, they spill the coffee all over each other, and then they, like, you know, apologetically dry each other off and look each other in the eyes and realize they've fallen in love. Okay, that that. sounds really wonderful, (laughs) but I've never heard this word before. So when you say meat cute, all I hear is M-E-A-T cute, and I'm just like... Wow, that's dark. <laughs> Your reaction is appropriate, I know. <laughs> that's too much for uh, for a little boy's book. Come to Ford Dinosaur. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Lord, no. <laughs> Stay away. Stay away. Well, well, speaking of uh, awful bastards, uh, Benson, the traitorous German agent. Motherfucker. What's up with this? What's up with this? Does he get into the love triangle? As far as I can tell, he's British. He was in the Royal Navy. And for some reason, he just really, really, really hates Americans. And it's not exactly clear to me why. Well, he's fake British. Is he fake British? Isn't he a fake British? I thought he was really British. He's a German He's certainly not German. He he was an agent with the Germans, but he says he hates Germans as well. Oh. He certainly wasn't a German. That's why he's he's out to kill everyone. He hates everyone. He's British. I have to be honest, I found this part of the story a little bit flimsy. It's, It's not really that clear to me why... Like there was something about. Uh, let me have a look. <laughs> Not jujitsu or the dinosaurs. Well, you know, this was the part you found this, flimsy. This part in particular. <laughs> Benson Benson says he did all of this. He poisons the water supply. He um, tries to steer the ship way off course, leading them to the land that time forgot in the first place. And basically try to sabotage all of their lives. And his reason is, uh, quote, I hate you. I hate all your kind. I was kicked out of your shipyard at Santa Monica. I was locked out of California. I became a German agent, not because I love them, for I hate them too, but because I wanted to injure Americans who I hated more. And that's that's his reason. But they locked him out of California. <laughs> Presumably they didn't let him into the jujitsu club. So he's just he's gone on this rampage. <laughs> Trying to sabotage all sides of World War One, <laughs> which yeah, that yeah. part was flimsy. <laughs> so this brings up a uh, quality of Burroughs' writing that I notice happens again and again. Something will just happen. They'll be on the deck of the ship with the Germans uh, tied up and imprisoned beneath the deck, and they're fighting off this other German boat, and they win. And then Bowen goes down to the bottom of the deck. And suddenly, the Germans are free, and they have guns, and now the Germans are in control of the ship. Yeah. And it's just like a sudden reversal of fortune, which he then spends the next three or four paragraphs explaining exactly how it happened. And I feel like if he told us how it happened first, it would be extremely flimsy, and it would be not fun to read. 
but he really keeps his stories exciting by just having these like sudden bam now this and benson's um like benson's backstory falls Mm. into that for me in the sense of burrow says i need a traitor and then okay we have a traitor What's his backstory? Yeah, just, you know, <laughs> something yeah, about jujitsu. I do like something that, about actually. California. Bringing up jujitsu <laughs> earlier, we kind of questioned it, but it is they, it does provide for nice turns. It's kind of an interesting technique, and you might bat your eyes not bat your eyes at it. You might uh, roll your eyes at it. <laughs> Tell me about this jujitsu bowen. <laughs> yeah, but I think I think it's a good technique. I'm gonna. We should steal this. <laughs> Uh, if you need to get into some sort of fun action scene and your character has been a skinny guy who's worked on boats all his life and has never done a push-up, suddenly he's a jiu-jitsu master. Jesus, master, from the local athletic club. What did you guys think about how every time they go out of Fort Dinosaur, um, they were killing dinosaurs and then chopping them up into steaks and soups and eating them? I felt like... Eating dinosaurs was a disproportionately large hmm. um, aspect of this story. It, it was strange. You're eating dinosaur steaks. You're living in Fort Dinosaur. You're being attacked by dinosaurs. But I do love when the when they're first attacked and they're still on the U-boat. And the dinosaurs swoop down, try and eat the U-boat. Dinosaurs jump up from the river, try and eat the U-boat. And then one just picks one of the guys off the front of the boat and swallows them whole. And then when they first start eating the dinosaurs for that dinner, they kill one, they put it in the soup, they're all sitting around eating the dinosaur, and then Liz starts to worry that they're actually eating the same dinosaur that just ate their friend. Like they're eating their friend through the dinosaur. But I would eat a dinosaur. I don't have any qualms with that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, I've had... Missing out. I've I've been blessed. I guess blessed is the wrong word. I've been... uh, I've had I've had other reptilious creatures. Uh, I've had alligator, you know, and uh, alligators were around in the time of the dinosaurs. So uh, I guess you could say I've had. I've eaten. You know, alligators really are just like a a contemporary dinosaur. Aren't Missing they? out on dinosaur steaks. <laughs> <laughs> Bowen, what about when Bowen takes on this? So so we go from uh, harrowing World War One tale seafaring tale nautical lore whatever and then to let's all try to survive these dinosaurs together and then his journey out into the middle of nowhere meeting weird cave people and finding out these weird cave politics also somehow learning their language in a few weeks and while doing that way yeah (laughs) and then trying to find lists tracking down his love like introducing it's interesting, actually, that, that that's how the book starts, too. You find this corpse that you fall in love with, and then you, you sandwich that corpse uh, with tracking your love down at the end of the book. And that, that that's the weird plot through line. Yeah. Yeah, and there's a kind of a cool poetic like metaphor at the end. Not a metaphor so much, but right, like the final paragraph of the book is when Benson has finally saved Liz from these uh, one of these race of... Mm. of uh, should we call them primitive people? I guess primitive people. Proto-humans. I mean, they're they're technically different species of humans, but yeah, they're not. Yeah, that's what I'm, that's mm. what I'm not sure about. Like they they're, they're kind of like somewhere they're Neanderthals, yeah. basically. Different varieties of cavemen. Mm. And one of the Neanderthals 
And one of the Neanderthals tries to essentially marry Lys in some kind of very basic, but what is quite clearly a marriage ceremony. And finally, she's saved by Benson. At the end, at the, and at the very end, he says, like, ah, oh, woman, the alpha and omega of life. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, mm. that is like, as Bob said, like, it's the, the sort of the bookend of uh, the bookend. The book is really sandwiched between him finding Liz and saving her life and then once again finding Liz and saving her life. That's kind of like the the only real common thread throughout the entire story. Yeah, but he, he elevates her by the end of it to this... Um, she stops becoming a character and turns into a kind of like symbol. Yeah. But it's weird that this entire continent is itself yeah. a kind of symbol. Um, I mean, you start out at the you know, the beginning is what they call it. And then as he goes, he meets all of these different like tribes of people. But as he goes further and further inland, they're all like all of these tribes would have existed tens of thousands of years after the other one. And, and then as they go, their speaking ability gets better. Like, I think they start like drawing more interesting art on their walls. Like Mm. he's really kind of turned this island into kind of like a thought experiment of what if all history happened at the same time, but instead of being separated temporally, it was separated spatially. And the further inland you go, the the closer you are to like a present day type of a thing. Yeah, I think that's really true. That's really true. And interestingly, all these people are defined by the tools they use. So we've got the Bandlu, who are known as spearmen. Uh, we've got Stolu, hatchet men. And then below them is the clubmen, Bolu, and then the Alus, who had no weapons or language. And he observes a very interesting thing, that in Kaspak, the term for like a person who can't speak is Alus, and in the outer world of our own day, he says it's Alalus. Did you know what he meant by that? Yeah, I looked up, I looked up that word, and there was, uh, there was an entry on one of the dictionary mm. websites, and it said it was of a, like a Latin origin, and then from like a Greek origin before that. But I didn't go too far into it. I was just like, okay, he's he's pulling out like a word that was current in his day and having it be like I thought that you said that that was Gallus. Uh no, Gallus is a different thing. We'll talk about that in a minute. Oh, okay. With Alalus, that was also, yeah. So some kind of hypothetical ape man is known as Alalus by some anthropologist called Heckel. Oh, okay. So I guess it's basically the anthropology of, of Edgar Rice's Burroughs' age considers a speechless man of the ape man to be called Alalus. And then Burroughs has sort of taken that and run with it. Yeah, and it's really interesting how he would come across these different people and he would be like, oh, that's a blah, blah, blah person. And then when I look up that word, it was actually the name of the archaeologist who discovered this kind of like skeleton somewhere. So, like, he's actually naming these tribes, like, whatever name is current in his day. But it was just interesting how it was like, oh, that's actually the name of the, the person who discovered it. Yeah, definitely. It, it almost felt like uh, Burroughs is really interested in this, like, ancient anthropology. Mm. And it seems like he almost wants to show off his knowledge. Or, like, show off might be the wrong word, but he wants to take what he's learned and turn it into something that could be a vehicle for storytelling. Yeah, I, I do I mean, it's also like a part of his other stories. I mean, he's also, Burroughs is very well known for the Tarzan stories. Again, about an ape man, about, you yeah, know, some sort of yeah. idea of primitive or even feral man, like pre, pre, mm. pre-man man sort of thing. You know, proto-human is like something that he's very much interested in again and again, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. As our character is going along through these different tribes, 
they keep on identifying him as Gallus. And they say, oh, you want to go that way back to your people. Um, and he never mm. personally identifies himself as Gallus or anything like that. But other people identify him. Yeah. So uh, he never actually meets the Gallus. I found this really strange. Yeah, he never meets yeah. the Gallus. But when I Googled the word Gallus, I had never heard of this before. But it's a term for a member of, like, the Jewish diaspora. Like, like maybe, like... Uh, oh. So I don't know. I, I got this sense that where Burroughs was going, and he didn't go here, but I, I thought halfway through the book where he was going was he was going to say like a lost tribe of Israel or something was here mm. in Kasbach. But he kind of just plants this seed and he never picks it up again. And I have to wonder if, you know, there's two sequels to this book. Um, the next one being called The People That Time Forgot. Will we... Will we see them again? Ah, well, it looks like we may well be coming across the uh, the Lost mm. Tribes of Israel. Reminds me of Erewhon. Yeah. Erewhon in itself was a lost world story. I mean, even if we read it through the lens of being a kind of utopia, uh, it has all the all the hallmarks of a good lost world story in that you know, it's it's far off lost and somewhere in South America, no contact with the outside world. It's this kind of like bottled up preserved society that Yeah, yeah, I don't know. There's a lot of there's a lot of good comparisons we could make between that story and this one. In Erewhon, uh they think that this people who are also in a lost world are the lost ten tribes of Israel. And that's why he's trying to get people to go and find this lost world. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's kind of how he's trying to sell it to the like his investors and his backers, isn't it? That book had a had a good frame story to it, and this book also had a bit of a frame story aspect to it as well. Th- this whole thing is told. It's a it's a message in a bottle story. So the first few pages is someone finding a thermos with a manuscript in it, washed up on shore, and they read it. And it's this narrator who's telling us about what's going on. But he does this really interesting thing where he's like, oh, you know, I'm going to start reading you this story. Um, in a few minutes, you won't even remember that I'm here. Like, it's this really weird uh, self-destructive narrator style where he's there. And then he tells the reader, he tells us, he's like, you're going to forget about me in just a minute. And then the story goes on from Bowen's perspective. Yeah, it is very interesting. And it's signed off with Bowen's name and also lists as well. And, you know, it's very interesting. It leads us to a lot of sort of loose ends at the end of the story. Well, what happens after this? Oh, yeah. You know, we've got to the end of this story, but they're still living in the land that time forgot. And like we've already mentioned, there's still a lot of unanswered questions. So I'm also very curious to to read some of the follow-up books here. It seems like it could um, relate to his idea of Tarzan, where there's like a boy growing up in the wilderness, kind of also in a land that time forgot. Because now, if this story continued, it's going to be a domestic story about living in the middle of nowhere and a couple trying to make it among the dinosaurs. So I wonder if, like, he did write two other books, but they're, I don't think they're the same characters in this world. I wonder if he picked up that thread of, like, domesticity in the midst of dinosaurs or mm. the jungle. Yeah, I thought lockdown was hard enough. Yeah. <laughs> Put me locked down in a treehouse. 
You know, I'm reminded of a ridiculous Slavoj Žižek quote of <laughs> where he says something along the lines of like every story, no matter what genre, is a love story at the heart of it. And, you know, despite <laughs> the submarine espionage, despite them gunning down dinosaurs and going into survival mode and this like long historical symbolism, this book is really just jujitsu, a jujitsu. Yep. Yep. This book is really just a love triangle between Liz Bowen and the Baron finally ending up with uh, Bowen and Liz living in a cave in uh, matrimonial happiness. It's beautiful. Beautiful little ending. There's a little thing that's been nagging me about this story, which I just found very strange as well before we move on to a different topic. The fact that, like you've already mentioned, Zach, it seems like this island or land is almost like the progression of time from, you know, the dinosaurs, the Mesozoic era until until we get something recognisable as human beings as we are today, but rather than temporarily, spatially. But what's very interesting about that is it seems like even the more primitive people here are aware of the more advanced people and aware that they are one day going to become these more advanced people. Like the after Bowen has improbably learned the language in the space oh, yeah. of a couple of weeks, he's having these conversations with uh, one of the people, not the Galus, but some other people, maybe the Banlu, something like this, and... This person says to him, go north among the Galus and we will not harm you. Someday we will be Galus, but now we are not. You do not belong among us. Go away or we will kill you. And I, th- I, I that's really been nagging at me. Like, what does this mean? Like, Yeah. And, and, and when he says he wants to go back, they tell him, no, you can't go back because you'll be killed if you go backwards. It's like this sense of like, yeah, yeah. Everyone is like explicitly aware that history only goes one way. It kind of reminds me of like nights at the museum or something like they're in some kind of like one big exhibit and it's like, oh, yeah, turn left. You get to the ancient Egyptians or whatever. It's kind of strange. Like they seem yeah. to know their place, but there all seems to be this idea that they're going to become something <laughs> else. I really don't understand how this works. So I think, mm-hmm. yeah, it's just kind of nagging at me. This this yeah. aspect of the story, I think is very peculiar. But I also kind of like how mysterious it is. Yeah, I like that it's not been tied up. I like that in this story, there are a lot of things that aren't really tied up. You know, what's going to happen to Liz and Bowen? Will we come across the Lost Tribes of Egypt? How do these people somehow have consciousness of mm-hmm. a future historic age? It, it, it's all, there's a lot of things unresolved in this story. And I kind of like it that way. Yeah. Yeah. I'm interested too. Is it is it like a factory almost like a, a time factory? The people without clubs who are the lowest of the low, once they get clubs, uh, do their people no longer exist, or do other yeah. like proto people come to replace them? You know, if they're they're going ah, <laughs> kind of like a conveyor belt, age by age, are all the ages always going to continue to exist? Yeah, yeah, it's like the. <laughs> The the timeline that forgot time, not just the land that forgot time. Or the land that time forgot, sorry. I wasn't really clear on how it worked with the animals, though, because it seemed like the animals were just willy-nilly everywhere. Like, at first, near the beginning, we're getting all these dinosaurs, but then, you know, then he's mm. like leopards, hyenas, uh, antelope, deer... I, it ultimately, it doesn't matter, and ultimately, I guess I don't know what the geographic spread of animals is for me to be like, oh, that's not right. But it did kind of seem to me that... Well, it ends in it ends in shaven cats. 
Wait, what? <laughs> yeah, it, it ends in domestication, yeah. It's the most sophisticated animal. <laughs> From dinosaurs to saber-toothed to antelopes to shaved cats in little sweaters. Cats wearing jumpers. We end up with dogs on TikTok wearing different outfits, doing cosplay. Will the follow-up books, if they are further in time, at least in comparison to Bowen, are we gonna go are we gonna move further up the factory and see people who are even more advanced than the Galus? Because yes, they recognize this Bowen man as someone from the future, a future they have already seen, but he also admits uh, you've never seen, or he sa- he suggests, you've never seen a gun. You've never seen clothes like mine. So how can I be someone from this area? How can I be someone from Galus? And he says, oh yes, well, maybe you'll have to teach me how to use these tools, use this gun, or to throw someone over my back. Um, in the future books, will we go as far as to see modern people or even future future people? Well, I think this idea of like uh, development is very interesting because something I noticed in the narrative here is that as Bowen is making his way through the three ages, as it were, these different kinds of people, it seems that he himself actually becomes more and more primitive. Hmm. At the end, he says uh, he's going to have to discard his clothes for leopard skins he tosses away his gun in favor of a club. And then at one point he's fighting uh, someone. He's fighting some guy from one of the tribes. And he starts trying to bite this man. He starts trying to, uh, you know, bite at his throat and tries to rip him with his hands. And it's only when Liz cries his name, she cries, Bowen, your knife, your knife. And he suddenly remembers once again that he's a modern man with a knife and instead of trying to eat this guy, he again just sticks his knife in his chest. So it seems like Bowen is almost forgetting who he is the longer he spends in this land. Hmm. Yeah. That could be it. So I wonder if that's kind of a counter-argument to this idea of like an unlimited development where we're eventually going to get to like laser guns and stuff like that, or is it just going to be a kind of a, we'll reach a certain limit and then, you know, return back to savagery? Well, I, I think that his return back to hmm. savagery coincides with him going back spatially to the point of the beginning so it seems like wherever you are standing personally that's kind of what you become in this book if that makes sense i don't know i i have a feeling that future books in this series Mm -hmm. will really lay out the exact mechanics of this land because from what i can tell they don't reuse any of the main characters it's always a new cast of people and so that makes the focus of the stories be on the actual, like, biological mechanism of what's going on in this land. Well, there's a bit in this story that I thought was interesting as well, where he comes across the grave of some guy called John Tippett. And he says, oh, no, my friend John Tippett, some other explorer before him who's landed, you know, been to this land. Oh, he was a good man. And that's all that was really mentioned of him. So there is already implied the fact that there's other people who've been here. He's not the first man, or they're not the first group, to set foot in this place. And, you know, already here we have this message from a bottle that's reached someone beyond land. So by the time we even read the story, Bowen and Liz could well be dead already. Mm. We don't really know how... Well, we know more or less the time frame. But it's very interesting. I wonder if we'll get some appearances like this in the future books. (laughs) When he's devolved into a complete Neanderthal and no longer has language. That's it. That's it. And we'll be like, this man seemed to be modern, and yet he was behaving like a savage. 
All right, well, I'm, I'm interested to see how much of uh, our next book, Journey to the Center of the Earth, whether it takes on like a similar, um, I don't know, like symbolic land kind of a thing. Like, is, is Jules Verne's story also going to attempt to say something about like the march of history or like the evolution of people or, or, or anything? Or is it just going to be like a simple adventure story that just has some people going to the middle of the earth? Talk to you later, Bob and John. Talk to you later, John and Zach. Talk to you later, Zach and Bob. <laughs>